Hey everybody, welcome to the So We Speak podcast. Today we've got one of my favorite people in the world, not just one of my favorite pastors, Lance Ward with us. So Lance is, uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself in his own words, but Lance is one of the funniest, uh, one of the best friends in the world, and one of the best pastors I know, and I think you're really going to enjoy getting to hear from him today. So Lance, let's start with your path in ministry. You have one of the most interesting kind of winding paths to get to where you are now, and one of the things I really love about it is God showed you every step of the way uh, sometimes not more than one step at a time, but showed you every step of the way things that he was going to call out of you in your next job. And so now right. I feel like you've arrived <laughs> at a place where you're doing what you were meant to do that you didn't know you were meant to do yeah. until maybe five or six years before you got yeah, into this that, job. So that's probably a good way of putting it. You know, I'd have to rewind all the way back to when Jenny and I, we'd been married for five years. We had our first kid, Landon. And we were living in Pensacola, Florida, but we wanted, we always had a hankering to get into full-time ministry. That's probably the first time anyone said hankering on this show, by the it way. Is, so I, ha- I don't some, remember that happening. Score some points yeah. there. And um, we had been serving in church ministry, but we really felt like we needed to go into full-time ministry. We got the counsel of someone we trusted and resolved that we, that I wanted to be a senior pastor. And so our next step was to move to Dallas, go to Dallas Seminary. While we were there, our mission there was to actually go to a church we were very familiar with, but economically and geographically, it was going to be really impossible to be a part of that church except just going to the services. And we thought, you know, well, that that can't be our involvement while we're here. So we were a little bit disillusioned to that point to think, you know, we came here not just to go to seminary, but to be involved in this church because we love the pastor, we love what they were about. But it just didn't work out. And so we kind of visited several places and we ended up settling on a small storefront church that Jenny was involved in a women's seminary Bible study that just happened to meet there. And she said, why don't we just go try this? It's two miles from our house. Let's go try it. So we did. And it was a church of about, at that time, maybe 180 people. Uh, It was a fairly new church. And I remember, though, feeling a little bit discouraged because I thought, you know, the potential for future ministry, it's not going to be good here because Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have all kinds of opportunities. It's a small church. At that time, they didn't even have adult Sunday school, and I love to teach. But we went ahead and started going and just fell in love with the place, fell in love with the people. We had all, well, most of my life I had been involved in fairly large churches. So this Mm -hmm. was new. It wasn't new to Jenny, but it was new to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Well... Time goes on. We squeeze four years into five. And the year before I'm to graduate, the founding pastor of this church makes a decision that he wants to go plant another church near where his he spent his summers in Indiana with his grandparents. And so long story short, I had preached. Uh, by this time, I had preached there several times. I had led a small group. I was on the board. I was a deacon at the time. Um, We had deacons and elders at that church, and it just, the way it worked out is I ended up being the pastor of a church in which we already knew the people, Uh didn't have to go through a candidating process because in that process, you're, you know, you never really know the church until you're there for a while. Right. So didn't have to go through the interview process. Well, we did in a sense, but not in the sense of not knowing the people. Right. It wasn't the full-fledged, you know, come, see it, be grilled for, you know, two half days yeah. 
um, and then go back and, you know, work at your other church and then, you know, right, the secrecy yeah. and all of that. Like, and I didn't have to be well-groomed for the interviews because they already <laughs> knew that I wasn't well-groomed. So when was a moment that you knew, I mean, I'm sure there was kind of an impending sense of call of opportunity, you know, all these things meeting at the same time. But when did you know at that point, this, I'm going to be the pastor of this church? It was after the committee said I could be, <laughs> but well, I think, I don't know. It, it's always hard to know the full scope of what everyone in the church thought, but I, Jenny and I sensed through people talking to us in other ways that we sensed the idea that most people were thinking, you know, unless something is really weird or out of whack, this just seems mm-hmm. like a natural transition. And the pastor that left to plant the other church, he felt that same way. Yeah. So uh, it just seemed like a good and natural thing. Uh, ended up being, well, I was there for eight and a half years, um, a small church. And, and, you know, population wise, it became even smaller <laughs> when I was pastor. So I'm not the one to write the book on how to grow a church numerically. And, you know, I think Cole in eight and a half years, and I really did, I set out that my dream was that this would be a place I would be at for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people, if they started a small church, that often is not their aspiration. It's a stepping mm-hmm. stone, but I really wanted to be here for the rest of my life. I thought, what a what a wonderful thing that would be to have our kids grow up and bring their kids back, you know? Mm-hmm. So great dreams, but it was also the first pastor that I ever had. And I, I think if I had a mental list, I would have a long list of things I wish I'd have done better. Mm-hmm. Uh, relationships I wish would have gone better to some degree, some relationships which I treasured and just continue to treasure. But uh, it was a, it was for about the second half of that eight and a half years, it, it became difficult in a lot of ways. And I, I just say that to say that part of it, too, is that we lived in a town outside of Dallas where just a few miles away was a church with over 10,000 members. And I think at least that many in attendance each week. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the natural draw, especially when you're raising kids and you're mm-hmm. raising youth is you don't want to go to this small church that has a youth group of seven kids in it. You want to go to a place that has all the bells and whistles and not there's nothing so much wrong with that, but uh, it was just, it, it became difficult and wearing until um, the last two years were particularly difficult um, for me. Um, I don't, I mean, there's a number of things I could talk about, they were just particularly difficult. And so it came to a point where, the summer before I ended up having to, I resigned on my own. No one, it wasn't a bad scene, but the summer yeah. before I resigned, the elders, you know, we met together and they said, Lance, we're going to, we're going to try to help you out because I just really felt like I was just burning out. And they mm-hmm. sent me to a pastor retreat, just wonderful place, got refreshed again, but then came back and it just, I, I just, it was hard. It was, I, I respect, there's so many small church pastors all over this country and all over the world. The vast majority of churches were even smaller than the one I was pastoring. Mm-hmm. And I, I just have a great admiration and respect for the, for the guys that do this for years upon years upon years. Oh, yeah. it's, and it's hard in any church. Um, but it's, it's the enemy is real and he's, he's, he wants to take you out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came back. Sometimes he manifests as a single family in a small <laughs> church that if they yeah. leave, half the youth group's gone. And, you well, know. That's, that's one of the challenges about a small church is 
If you've got one or two families that leave or even aren't there for a few Sundays, mm-hmm. it's it's a heavy burden. It You yeah. know when a family leaves. Mm-hmm. I'm at a church now which has so many great things going on. Six to 7,000 people walk through the doors every week. And unless I know them very personally, it, it's hard to know that kind of thing. Right. Um, but, you know, you, you look out and see who's pulling in the parking lot on Sunday morning, kind of wondering. You, you, it's, it's a... It's it's an interesting deal, but at the end of the day, too, before I talk about the point where I ended up leaving, one of the things I always take to heart is that I know this is true, that the Lord will bear fruit in ways we cannot see, mm-hmm. in ways we have not seen. So as much as I think about what I wish I would have done better and I wish things would have gone better and my dream would have come true— the, the reality is God used that season of our lives to grow us up. He used that season of our lives to build into other people. I, I get feedback every now and then from people and they'll say, hey, you know, 15 years ago, I still remember when you said this and it's yeah. still helping me today. And so uh, I, my hope is that at the judgment seat, I will see what I couldn't see here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a rich experience, a lot of good friendships, lifelong. We feel like these people are our family. It's the only church our kids knew for a long time. But that next, um, late that fall, I just felt like I just felt like I was not the right guy for this anymore. I, in fact, I told our elders, I met with them, and I said, I feel, I don't even feel moral accepting a paycheck right now. I'm just doing this to feed my family, and I sh- that's not why I should be doing this. Yeah, and I'm and I'm getting to the point where I'm I'm burning out, and I'm afraid I've already hurt some people in that process, and I'm afraid I'm going to hurt more, and I need to just get out of this. And they they did not want that from the what you know the way they talked to me, but. Uh, but the, the here's the thing they said to me, and, and I'm not a guy. If you talk about, do you have the gift of faith? I'd say, ah, I'm I'm pretty. I don't take a lot of risks. Mm-hmm. But the first question was, Lance, what do you do? You have something lined up? And I said, you know what, I don't. But I've talked to Jenny, and I just what I felt in my heart was that God needed me to go ahead and make this move because the church wasn't going to make this move. They didn't feel like I needed mm-hmm. to go. Um, and so my thought was God's somehow going to take care of us. I don't know how. We got three kids, a mortgage. We had a pet dog, two pet rats. I mean, we had a <laughs> lot of mouths to feed, believe it or not. And and it was our kids' only church. I mean, we, we had to tell our kids the day before I announced it to the church. Mm-hmm. And they were just crushed. You know, they were just, there were tears and they don't understand. And there's no way they could understand at that time. Yeah. But, Anyway, what happened was, so the elders were just so great. They were like, Lance, I'll tell you what, because I told them we set a date about two months ahead of when I first told them, and then we told the church in that process. But um, they said, since you don't have anything, why don't you just be here on Sundays and preach and whatever else you can do, great. But you just need to spend all your time looking for something because we we don't want your family. We we love your family. Mm-hmm. Um, so And the rats. And the rats. I mean, you I mean, got to feed the rats. You can only do bargain cheese for so long. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and they and they were very choosy about their cheese. That's right. So I mean, but that was a that was a really generous offer from the elders. I mean, it, it speaks to the relationship you have with the elders because a lot of separations from churches don't go that well. Yeah, and that um, was and and that one sounds like that, God was already taking yeah. care of you before you even left. Yeah, that was that, that was the nice thing about this is it was a peaceful, kind. It was there was no no 
battles or it wasn't a fight or somebody hurt somebody else, um, it, but it needed to happen for their sake and for our sake. Right. Um, so what happened was I began in that next, that was, that was the first part of December. So for the whole month of December, I started looking. And then right after Christmas, then I start getting stressed out because mm. then I think, okay, I've only got a few more weeks here and I've got nothing. I, and, you know, there were thoughts of my mom lived in Oklahoma City at the time. We were in Dallas. There were thoughts of uh, maybe we go live with my mom and and I just had and I'll just do just a manual labor job for a while and mm-hmm. get 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 my heart and head back in order and just do something where we can get by and that kind of thing. Well, so this pastor friend calls me a couple of days after Christmas, I think it was, or somewhere late December. He goes, hey, um, do you, have you ever had any interest in hospice chaplaincy? And interestingly enough, we'd had a person in our church that just lived right around the corner from our church that had died a few years before. And that's the first time I'd ever even known what a hospice chaplain was because mm-hmm. the hospice chaplain and I would visit their house a lot. And my first question was very spiritual. I said, how much does it pay? Because <laughs> we had to take care of the family. You know? So, And he said, well, we I've got a friend. She's the head nurse at a local hospice, and they need a chaplain yesterday. And so ended up talking to her and in... The way it worked out was, you know, because my biggest concern was I don't want my family to suffer for this. I want mm-hmm. them to be taken care of. And so it ended up we could just kind of get by with that. And uh, so then I get into hospice chaplaincy. And hospice, I'm sure the listeners know what that is, but that's end-of-life care. When somebody is dying, it's comfort care. Uh, mm-hmm. There are nurses that are part of that. There's uh, certified nursing assistants. There are chaplains. There's social workers. And so... You just go around and visit with dying people and their families. Wow. And I started doing that. I didn't feel comfortable with it at first. It was just kind of strange. It's strange going from the guy that everyone knows and everyone wants to talk to, because that's just the nature of being a senior pastor, to I'm just this necessary evil, in a sense. Mm. And I mean that tongue-in-cheek, that... At a hospice, it's it's actually Medicare, I think it is. I, I may be wrong, but they require that you have a chaplain. And so the chaplain is kind of the guy that just has to be there. Right. Uh, I, I know that's probably putting it roughly, but that's kind of the way I saw it when I came in. So ended up, after I kind of got my rhythm, I just absolutely loved that. Because the, the, the nice thing about it was you're going around all day to different locations and you're just shepherding people, mm-hmm. but you have no administrative worries. You have nothing, you don't have to worry about is somebody going to call in sick on Sunday morning that can't come and teach your Sunday school, you know, the children's yeah. Sunday school, all the administrative stuff that pastors work with, especially pastors in small churches, that's off of me. And I'm just going around shepherding people. Mm-hmm. So I just loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I did that in total for about a year and a half, but about a year in, I wrote a couple of articles. And by that time I'd gotten on Facebook, that was when Facebook, it was it, the adults that weren't, the people that weren't college students were just starting to get on Facebook. So I'd gotten <laughs> on Facebook and I loved writing. And so I wrote a couple of articles within a few weeks. One was, um, and one had to do with pastoring and Moses and looking at Moses in the book of Exodus and how the people couldn't stand him. They wanted to fire him after his first day. Yeah. Um, Aaron, they wanted Aaron to be their guy because he did what they wanted. 
And I just kind of wrote a paper on, you know, but as we look back at Moses, he's the premier in the book of Hebrews. When they want to talk about how great Jesus is, who do they compare him to? Mm -hmm. They compare him to Moses. And so it was just a paper on, you know, if you're in the ministry and you're doing what the father wants you to do, you could be right on track, even when it seems like nothing's going right and Mm -hmm. that the, the followers don't appreciate you. It was just a, I called it mosaic leadership. Um, then I wrote a paper on six months into hospice chaplaincy. It was called six things I've learned in six months. Well, long story long. So what happens is my mother goes to church at that point. She, and she still does. She went to the church at where I'm a congregational care pastor now. And, um, she knew the assistant to the senior pastor, Marty Grubbs. And, and she knew his assistant and she said, Hey, I thought, I think Pastor Marty might kind of like these articles. Would you mind passing them along? And I, I don't know exactly what happened in the process or, you know, he read them, he passed them on. But then I get a call from the, an associate pastor. It was actually a message through Facebook. And the message said, Hey, I don't know if you've heard of us, but we're a large church in Oklahoma City where, where I grew up. And we're looking for a guy that has exactly the skill set you have. We're looking for a guy that has pastoral experience and that has experience with death and dying and hospitalization and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, would you be interested? And so long story short, what happens is within a few months, we're back in Oklahoma City where I grew up. We're at the church we're at now, and I'm a congregational care pastor. The way this works together, Cole, you know, you talked about the Lord moving. Again, I'm not a big risk, risk taker. Yeah. Um, but the way I got to where I am now was I had to make that hard decision to step down from something, not knowing what was coming next. Mm-hmm. I did that, and then the Lord brought along hospice chaplaincy. Then the Lord brought along a position in a church once again, where it's kind of like hospice chaplaincy in that our department in congregational care, we deal a lot with just coming alongside people and shepherding them. Mm-hmm. And there are other departments that do other things very, very well, but that's that's what they do. And so it's kind of like the hospice chaplaincy in that every day, it's just a deal of, hey, who needs to be loved on today? Right. And I just am loving it. Yeah. Um, well, and you're good at it. And, it and and like you're saying, the the preparation that God put in your path was something that you probably would never have done if you weren't in the situation of just needing something. Like I'm right. just imagining at the end of your time um, at the church you're pastoring, if somebody would have asked you, would you rather pastor or would you rather do hospice chaplaincy? You know, yeah. up until maybe the very last moments of that time at that church, it wouldn't even have been a question. Yeah. You wanted to pastor. Yeah. But little did you know then that you would pastor, but it would be in a different role than you anticipated. And I, yeah. I like that story because... I feel like sometimes it is so hard to figure out what God wants from you. And it's because you want to see 10 years from now, five years from now, even 50 years from now, mm-hmm. when God has to put you in a situation where you only see a few days ahead in order yeah. to do what he has for you. Yeah. And uh, sometimes he limits the scope, I feel like, of what he's going to show you so that you'll do what he has you yeah, exactly. to do. You know, it reminds me of Cole's at in Psalm, I think it's 119, where it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And oh, yeah. somebody a long time ago had illustrated that for me, where they said, if, if you live back in those days, what is that lamp doing? It's lighting up the next two or three steps. You cannot see at night what's 40 yards away or 100 yards away. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was a real, it was a great teacher for me and for Jenny 
when we went through that, that the Lord is just saying, I'm not going to show you what's down the road, but you just take this next right step. You know, you've heard the phrase, do the next right thing. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what we were doing. We were just, we were just doing the next right thing. And yeah, no expectations. You know, my thought was, well, I guess I'm just going to do this hospice chaplaincy for years, you know, but, mm-hmm. but the, the unfortunate thing is that it, we were just barely skimming by each month mm-hmm. financially. So it was, so it was like, well, maybe there, you know, I wasn't thinking this time. I was just enjoying it. And God takes care of you when you do that too. I mean, I could be still doing that today, but, right. but at all that happened only because I finally, you know, I wanted my, my thing when I was at the church in Dallas and I started to realize that maybe I'm not the right person to take this in a new direction. My thought was, well, Lord, show me where I can go next. And mm-hmm. he just didn't. Yeah. And it, he was silent. Yeah. And it was like he was saying, Lance, I'm waiting for you to really trust me here. Yeah. And I did. And again, I don't give myself any credit for that. I was scared. I woke up one night that December. My heart was beating fast. I rem- I've got journal entries. I've filled up journals for that couple months where I didn't know what was going on. And I mm-hmm. go back and read those now. And I realize just how scary that was, which, by the way, Cole, that's one of the things I learned, too, is that. I think sometimes when you exercise faith, fear is right there. It's it's oh, yeah. not it's not always that faith means I'm fearless. Sometimes I'm more afraid than I've ever been, and yet I know to keep moving in this direction because God's not afraid. Mm-hmm. God is in control. God's God's in charge here. He knows what's best, and I've got to trust my Father. Well, I think until you go through a situation like that, you don't appreciate the story of Abraham. Mm. So you, Abraham living in the town that he grew up. And he's there with his family and, you know, the the path forward probably was pretty good for Abram when he was Mm -hmm. living there. And God calls him and says, I want you to get up and go. Doesn't tell him where he's going. And he leaves and 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 in Hebrews it tells us he left not knowing where he would arrive. But he trusted God in that situation. And I feel like you hear so many testimonies and so many stories and sermons of people where God, you know, provides something and then it's this nice smooth transition into what yeah. you've always wanted. It's like the old quip that like, why is it that pastors are always called to the next church that happens to be bigger and in a better town and closer to home and with a higher salary? Yeah. You know, it's like it doesn't but it doesn't always work that way. No. A lot of the pattern scripturally is God calls and he doesn't reveal where you're going until you're on the move. Yeah, And those are the moments that, like you said, the absence of fear is not an indicator that you're in the will of God. Trusting God is, yeah. in, is the indicator that you're in the will of God. You know, it's, I'll tell you this too in hindsight, too, that one of the things I've thought about since that church experience right out of seminary, you know, as I said, it was my dream. I really wanted to, to be the pastor of that church for life and, you know, all that. But... God had other plans, and when I look at it in hindsight, and I had a lot of time to think after I had stepped down, both in the month when I was looking for work and even in hospice chaplaincy, because hospice chaplaincy was a nine-to-five job, mm-hmm. unless you were on call at night or a few late-night calls. But for the most part, you got home, and you didn't have anything on your mind like you did as a senior pastor. And so I just reflected a lot, and I began to think, Lord, did you have me there? I think maybe I thought you had me at that church so that I could help people grow. And that's true. 
But I also learned that, no, maybe he had me there and he had Jenny there with me because we had a lot of growing to do. Hmm. And that that step was not what I thought it would be, but it certainly in our lives was priceless and valuable. Mm-hmm. It, it showed me a lot about my heart that, that you know, I, I told you this before, Cole, that I one of the things I learned about senior pastoring and my role in it was that I would often say I wanted people to be holy, mm-hmm. but a lot of times in my heart of hearts, I really just wanted them to behave. <laughs> and that's easy to get caught in yeah. that trap. Behave so that I can have peace mm-hmm. rather than be holy. Because to, to, to spur people onto holiness is hard work and the enemy is coming after you. Mm-hmm. It's easy to go, I just want everybody to behave so I can have some peace and quiet on Saturday or, or one day, you know, whatever. Yeah. And but I, you know, the Lord showed me that he, it was kind of like you saying, Lance. You know, you got when you want people to be holy. What are you asking for? Is that what you really want? Because it's going to require a lot of you. Mm-hmm. And is that, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. in hindsight, I learned a lot about that too. But you're yeah. right. Just taking that one step and and yeah. seeing what's going to happen. And that's that's all of the Christian life, really. It's and you know the thing is too when I when I exercise that move of faith. I've always thought of people that are that exercise a lot of faith as warriors and strong people. I felt like a kid in the grocery store who can't find his mom. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking around every corner of every aisle, and I'm getting scareder and scareder. But I know, is that right, or is it more scared? <laughs> you, wait, I'm the journalism major. Yeah, right? yeah, right, you should so, know this. So, you know, you but you know that mom's in the store somewhere, and you know she's not going to leave that store. But yeah. you just can't. And that's what it felt like. It didn't yeah. feel like gladiator or something like that. Right. Where, yeah, you're just gradually ascending to this new thing God has for you. You just yeah. don't know at the time, but you know yeah. he'll come through at some point. So you get to your job that you have now, and you're doing a combination of the things that you've done before. You're caring for people. Um, you're working on a, a big church staff. You're overseeing a small staff. I mean, you're bringing all kinds of things to mm-hmm. bear here. Talk to us about a typical week now in your job at Crossings. Well, the, you know, it starts off Sunday, and this is one of the things I didn't mention. I, I, I still love teaching. And mm-hmm. within about six months of coming to Crossings, I inherited a Sunday school class. And it was a Sunday school class that was already built up. And it had, you know, right now, they're, it's funny. When I think about our class, it's not quite as many people as I preach to in the small church, but it's the similar group. So, uh-huh. so the week starts off with me pastoring the way I aspired to back in seminary. Right. And just pastoring a group of people and in a large church. If you're not involved in a Sunday school class or a small group, it's really not church. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of a group that Jenny and I are involved in that we are, you know, I don't just teach them, but we're getting to know them. Right. Uh, so it starts off on Sunday with that. And then the week, uh, aside from meetings and things like that, it's often meeting with people, hearing what's going on. There's a We have as our team a staff meeting each week. And that's also a shepherding moment where we can meet together. And um, we don't, we don't talk business at that point. We don't talk about, well, you know, we, we do sometimes pray for people in our congregation or we talk about who's in the hospital, but it's more of let's talk about where we are with the Lord. How can Mm -hmm. we strengthen our souls to do what we're doing? Yeah. Um, But you know, today's a good example. Every day is a little bit different, but um, just even today, uh, a phone call and a hospital visit. You know, I come out of those today, and my thought is, and this is one of the things I'm learning about care ministry, is I don't, I, I believe more in the Holy Spirit 
Mm-hmm. Because I look at what some of these people are going through, and I think there's no way a human being could handle this hmm. by themselves. Yeah. It's just too big. Yeah. That, that God indeed does allow more than we can handle, much more. And I just remember a couple of recent situations where I really, I told each one of them, I said, I don't know how you're doing this, and I don't know how I would handle this. The mm-hmm. only thing I can come up with is the Holy Spirit is working in you. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it's that a lot of it is, is interacting with people whose lives are falling apart. Yeah. They're faithful people. They love Jesus. They don't understand because they are growing up in a prosperity gospel culture that says, if you love Jesus, then everything will go. Okay. And they, this is so ingrained. This is way ingrained in our culture right now in our, and even in our church culture. And you know, then they find out, but here's what you see. Here's what part of my week is. You see people going through this and you see the beauty of what suffering does to mm. somebody who loves Jesus. Wow. And it's so much more beautiful than the person that has the nice car and the nice house because they quote unquote trust in Jesus. Right. That's a lot of the week. It's just interacting with people. We, we, our motto in our department is we're walking with God's people through seasons of sorrow, suffering, and sickness. Hmm. And that's what we do. We're just, but every week, aside from meetings that are pretty typical, every day is different. Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to ask you is if it, that's a ministry of the church that you don't think about until you need it. Yeah. Um, you, you think about the church, you think preaching, worship, you know, programming, mm-hmm. all that. Until you find yourself in a situation where you really need the pastor, you right. need someone to come and care for you, you need somebody to be there. But on the flip side, that's got to take a toll on you and your team. How do you, I mean, you see people at their worst in their hardest moments yeah. a lot. How mm-hmm. do you yourself and your team keep away from burnout, mm-hmm. emotional fatigue, care fatigue, how do you stay? I mean, you're a funny guy, you're a happy guy, and yet you're dealing with sorrow and suffering and death on a daily basis. Yeah. What have you learned in your own heart, in your own soul, and in your walk with Christ to stay fresh, to stay <laughs> sane during those times? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm. it's kind of almost a trial and error thing. They, they call this what probably what you're talking about, compassion fatigue, which happens can happen with anyone in care ministry or counseling. Um, I think on a daily basis, one a couple of things I do every day. I'm in the Word of God. You know, I, I'm I have a plan, and I've been doing this for several years now. Where, if nothing else, I start my day off reading Scripture through a plan that takes me through the entire Bible in one year. So that I'm continuing, you know, because if I don't, here's the thing. If you read devotionals, what are you doing? You're reading only what you want to read. You're hearing only what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing about that is you get this imbalanced view of a, of a God that doesn't really exist. Yeah. So what I have, and there's nothing wrong with doing that on the side, but I read through the Bible every year because what I want to do is I want to understand as best I can every aspect of who God is and how he works and who we are and what our tendencies are. And you get that reading through the scripture. So every day starts with, that's what Jenny and I do. We, we both get up about the same time. We go, we get our Bibles, we get our journals, we get a cup of coffee because as one famous saint once said, where would Christianity in America be without coffee? And then we <laughs> we read our Bibles and and get and pray and start our day off remembering who we're worshiping. And I, I and the other thing I started doing a few years ago is running uh, about three days a week. Uh, there's a lot of guys on staff that I work with that kind of push me that way when I 
uh, there, when I, my britches started getting too small, I was like, do I want to invest in new britches? That's probably the first time britches has been on the podcast too. It definitely is. Do I need new britches or should I do something else? And the guy on staff named Ryan said, have you ever thought about running? So I started doing that. So since 2011 or 12, I've been doing that, run the half marathon here in Oklahoma City every year. And I've, I've always heard that that's just good anyway mm-hmm. for your body and the things that are going like yeah. that. Um, and in our department, we deal with a lot of hard stuff, but at the same time, we we do laugh a lot. Mm-hmm. We do joke a lot. We don't do that to be insensitive to people. We don't, you know, we, we but we laugh a lot in our department. And, and I don't know what it is. I think it's a defense mechanism because I was such a small guy when I was little, but I've just have this sense of humor that has developed into something strange over the years. And so... <laughs> God's given me this strange ability to say funny things often or mm-hmm. this wittiness that sometimes gets me into trouble. But one of the main things it does is, you know, our people in our department every day we laugh about something mm-hmm. and, de- and sometimes several times during the day. Yeah. Laughter is good. Laughter is, is medicine. You know, what yeah. was it? There's a proverb somewhere that says something like mm-hmm. that in some book. But yeah. Um, but the other thing I notice is that when I'm home in the evening and Jenny will notice there will be times we're just kind of out of nowhere, just on occasion. I think we all do this, but I might just be kind of snippy. Mm-hmm. And she's just great about saying, Lance, are you doing okay? And that's usually a signal to me that this this stuff is getting the, to me. The, the late, even the background kind of latent buildup yeah. might be just boiling over at that point. Yeah, because, I mean, take, for example, people I visited in the last 24 hours and talked with. That stays in your soul. Yeah. Because you care about them. Right. But but there's a way when you get home that, you know, I've got to try to figure if I'm that way, I'm, I'm trying, I try to rewind and say, what, whose burden am I carrying right now that I need to just, just release to the Lord for a little while and get back to it tomorrow. But that's a great signal. Jenny's real honest with me. She'll just let me know, you know, you're, you're getting a little testy right here. What's going on? And, you know, if it's sometimes it's after Texas beats OU, that's explicable there. <laughs> uh, just a few weeks ago, it was very tough. But, you know, when we win, it's like, Lance, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Your, your, your idol is fine. As you it, sit here with your OU button up on. That's in right. Pre- in preparation for bedlam. <laughs> I know you appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I really do appreciate but, it. Yeah, the sense of humor is a, 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 yeah. a big thing. One of the things I've noticed about pastoral ministry that you probably don't realize until you get into the inside. And so, I mean, pastors probably don't talk about this a lot, but one of the things I noticed is I think the hardest thing about pastoring is the breadth of emotional involvement that's expected of you every day. Mm -hmm. So you can be meeting in your office with somebody who's walking through a really hard time, the worst moment of their life. And yeah. you're there, and you're mirroring them. You're you're empathizing. Mm-hmm. You're sorrowful. You know you are weeping with those who weep. And then ten minutes later, you may have to go walk on a stage and welcome everybody, yeah. and you know get, get up and meet somebody. And our guides are here. And then you have to go back, and you have to be you know clearing your mind to teach and prepare a message. And you got to go do that, or you got to lead a small group, or you know you've got to go support somebody at something that they're doing. I mean. The highs are really high and the lows are really low. And one of the things I've found is I think that's harder than almost anything else in pastoral ministry is just being able to span that on a daily basis, sometimes an hourly yeah. basis. Yeah. And um, uh, the toll that that takes on you. And, you know, it's not a surprise that what's the remedy for that? Well, 
the same things that you would do if you weren't in pastoral ministry. Yeah. Walk with the Lord, be in his word every day, rely on the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I've, I've always loved this quote um, about elders. I think it's a D.A. Carson quote. And, and, you know, we don't need to get it too far into ecclesiology here. But, you know, the role that you're playing is an elderly kind of role hmm. in, in the church. It's, it's pastoral ministry. And, yeah. of course, we have elders at the church. But, uh, you know, in your capacity as a pastor, you're shepherding the flock and D.A. Carson says that, that an elder is someone who does uh, what ordinary Christians do extraordinarily well. Mm. And mm. that's good. Thought. You know, so when you think about, well, what's the remedy for anybody, not just a pastor, in having to, you know, deal with the things that life throws at you and walking through really difficult seasons in, um, you know, the just kind of the burnout that we could all face spiritually is, there's no trick. Yeah. You know, there's no shortcut. This isn't like spiritual growth through life hacks. This is the ministry of the word, prayer, the Holy Spirit, accountability, you know, have it, like you said, having a wife that is sensitive to what God is doing in your relationship and in both of you. Yeah. And uh, I, I just think that's an encouraging word. If you're in ministry or not to know that, you know, it doesn't really change. You know, I, the key passage that's kind of, it kind of I I I didn't I want to say I discovered this I knew this passage but I discovered it in a new way in hospice chaplaincy and it's kind of become my foundational passage to this type of ministry and it's Romans eight starting in verse twenty two says the whole creation groans um, uh, the whole creation is groaning up to, up until now and then it says even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, Paul says, even we who have all the hope in the world, we groan inwardly Mm. as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Mm -hmm. And he says, in this hope we were saved, hope that is not seen as, hope that is seen is not hope at all, but who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not yet see. That passage is, I, I think, a key passage to not only the Christian life. He doesn't just say pastors who are in congregational care groan. He <laughs> yeah. says, we all groan, yeah. but we also hope. Mm-hmm. And so I look at our role in congregational care as we are hopeful groaners. Mm. We are coming alongside you in your groaning, and we're not denying that groaning. We're not trying to make you happy in the groaning. We are groaning with you. Yet we're not despairing because we're also giving you hope. We're not giving you optimism. That's a mm-hmm. different thing to an extent because sometimes optimism is just positive thoughts. Positive yeah, just thinking. fanciful, you know, not, not but, realistic. Yeah, but we're reminding you of hope. Yeah. And so, you know what keeps me going a lot is I always try to remember this, whether it's teaching Sunday school or hosting a service or preaching on a Sunday or going and visiting someone in the hospital is the gospel is why we're there. Mm. When, I'm, when I'm meeting with a family whose loved one has died, and we're talking about the funeral coming up, one of the things that rolls through my mind, and I love having those conversations because I think it's very good for the family, but it's just, for me, I'm trying to get more material if I didn't know the deceased very well. But as I'm doing that, my mind starts rolling back to how is this person manifesting the image of God in them? And therefore, in this service, how can I take what we know here and make sure that everyone in that service hears the clear gospel. Mm. Even in death, there's life. Even in the right. groaning. I mean, I use that passage a lot in funerals. Yeah. That we today are groaning here. But if your hope is in Christ alone, your groaning will end one day. And it's not just the redemption of some soul bouncing around on a cloud. It's the yeah. redemption of our 
bodies. Mm-hmm. Your loved one died of cancer. They'll have a body with no more cancer. This is the this is the goal of the gospel. Yeah. Is the glory of God in that we've got people that can't get sick, can't get can't die, can't groan. One day we won't be able to groan anymore. Yeah. So what one of the things that keeps me going is and I get fired up about this. I don't know if oh, you yeah. can tell right now, but I'm coming out of the seat, but is that our mission is to give people the good news of the glorious Jesus Christ mm-hmm. who's going to redeem our bodies and he's going yeah. to make all things new. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And we have that we have the opportunity every day to people that are suffering and people who've lost, lost loved ones just to say to them, there is great hope and this is not going to be forever. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, even death will die. 1 Corinthians 15, where, oh, death is your sting. I tell people at gravesides when I read that verse, I say, one day we're going to look death in the eye and we're going to taunt death. Hmm. And we're going to say, no more, no more. You are done. We are going to taunt death and not get an unsportsmanlike penalty for it. So, <laughs> wow. But that's, that's what motivates me is it's like every day we are hoping and groaning and groaning and hoping, but we're, not, we're never separating either one. That's where we are in our world. Wow. So that's unbelievable. Sorry, I don't and, sound too passionate about that. Yeah, I can tell you care a little bit about yeah, this. I was kind of robotic there. Yeah, so. that is just, it's, it's such a good thing to be reminded of. And that passage in Romans, too, I think we want to jump to the end and say, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we're more than conquerors. And, and sometimes what the season you're in demands is not the feeling of being more than a conqueror. Yeah. You feel much less than a conqueror. Yeah, you've got to have somebody that is going to lament with you. Yes. You, and you've got to be taught that. I mean, how many people... You know what? So many people will say to me, they'll say one or two things, I know I shouldn't feel this way. Oh, wow. Well, you shouldn't. We live in a sin-wrecked world. It's, yeah. This is awful what's happening to you. Mm-hmm. Or I know that God can't give me more than I can handle. And, and I usually don't answer that there, but... You know, I, I try to instill in that philosophy when people tell it to me is it's not about what you can handle. That's not the the gospel isn't there to just be your little vitamin. The gospel is there to get you through what you can't handle. Oh, yeah. On the back of a savior who can handle it for you. Yeah. You know, it's if if, if you're just talking about God giving you more than you can handle, you don't need Christ. You don't need the gospel. Uh-huh. You just You just need to bow up, you know, but. That's not the reality. The reality is we, as Christians and as non-Christians do too, we have more than we can handle. What Christians have, though, is we have hope in what we can't handle. Man, well, that this has been probably the most powerful podcast we've done. And, and part of it is it, some of those moments that... Uh, you know, Paul says we it was it wasn't until we despaired of life itself that we realized that that was God making us rely not on ourselves but on Him yeah. who raises the dead. Yeah, that's another great passage. And, uh, for that. Yeah, you know, I just really am thankful that you shared that with us and and just to get that perspective from you. Um, I, I want to go on a little bit lighter note here. Uh, we're sending you off to a desert island. And yeah. you get to take five books. Yeah, now, Jen, Jenny's going with me too, right? Yes, I'm not Jenny's going. This is a vacation. Okay. Uh, and there have already been some people at the island. So Terry Fakes has already been there. So yeah. there's a Bible. There's a Greek Bible. There's a Hebrew Bible. And a map. There's a map. Yeah. The, the, the ESV Bible Atlas is already there. That's one yeah. of the books that he took on this yeah. <laughs> to this desert island. So um, tell us five books that you would take with you on an extended stay desert island trip. Okay, yeah. Assumption one, a Bible and a hymnal aren't included in this because I want a Bible and a hymnal with me. Right, but, right. Okay, so 
I appreciate you giving me a heads up because that's a hard question. I love to read, but my top five, number one would be Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan because that's a great, I, I don't know that I've ever read a book that's such a great biblical metaphor of what it means to struggle in the Christian life with your eyes set on the hope to come. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one that's not read as much. I mean, that, that's one of the best-selling books Ever. Ever. And yeah. hardly any Christian today has read it. And it's, you know, and I'd, I would recommend if anyone hasn't read it, I got the Warren Wiersbe version where he takes the older English, puts it in a little bit more understandable way without changing anything. But he also has footnotes at the bottom because John Bunyan just bleeds scripture. Mm-hmm. There's just scripture all throughout the book. Well, Wiersbe does a great job of saying this is where he's quoting here. And what you can see is that as he's writing this book and he wrote it from prison, you know, and he was in prison right. for preaching the gospel. They said, we'll let you out if you don't preach the gospel where he goes, no, I'll just preach it right when I get out. <laughs> so he's in prison for 12 years. He's got a wife and kids at home because yeah. he wants to preach the gospel. And this is one of, I think, two books he wrote there, but it just bleeds scripture. Yeah. And uh, it's just a great example of how to tell people what your life is going to be like after Christ through the lens of scripture. So Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. That's a not, great one. Not Paul Bunyan. He's the guy that was the giant that <laughs> cut down the trees. He was his cousin. Yeah. Uh, secondly would probably be Knowing God by J.I. Packer, mm-hmm. mainly because when we talk about systematic theology, I think if you've got somebody, and I wouldn't use that term with them, but if you've got somebody new to the faith that, that likes to read, it's a thin book. Well, I mean, it's a couple hundred pages, but it gives you a fairly concise doctrine of the Christian faith mm-hmm. in, in a lot of different angles. So I think if we're doing a tally. That one's near the top of the books we've had recommended just because it, you, you can start with that book from anywhere. Been you a Christian can. two days. You've been a Christian 20 years. You've read that book 10 times. You've never encountered G.I. Packer before at all. It's just a great book. Oh, it's and you can start with any chapter you'd like. I often use it as a reference when I'm teaching. You know, if I'm talking about the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, mm-hmm. I still remember a quote in there. G.I. Packer says, uh, the son of God was uh, born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It's the most wonderful news the world ever has heard or will hear. Yeah. And it's just got rich quotes like that, too. So knowing God. Thirdly, the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in a world that sees God as kind of your buddy or your good luck charm or just, you know, that just treats God casually, this is a book that will awaken your soul to something that we just don't see much anymore anywhere. Yeah. And that is that God is holy and he, uh, he is, aside from the grace of Christ, he's unapproachable. You know, you look through the scripture and you see that anyone that sees God falls on their face. Right. And so it's just a reminder. It's a great reminder to people. Don't, God is your friend, but he's not your buddy. He mm. He loves you, but he's not your peer. He is the holy, majestic, undefeated champion of the universe. And guess what? If you're in Christ, he's on your side. That's the mm. good news. He's not, he's not there to beat you down. Right. But at the same time, he's, he's holy and it's yeah. a humbling book. And there's nobody that championed that better in recent memory than R.C. Sproul. It might've been Steve Lawson. I saw on Twitter the other day that tweeted out some days the world just feels empty without R.C. Yeah. And I know for you who've been impacted by reading his books and listening to him and his preaching, his teaching, I mean, just a force of theology in yeah. the world. That book is a great place to start. It really is. And it's it's easy to read. It's not 
it's not it's easy to read verbally it's not easy to read in one sense because it will jar you mm-hmm. but it will jar you in a good way it will convict it, you it really it will presses the presence of god down on you yeah. in ways that you might not have felt before you, you know what it's like whole, the holiness of god is like lifting weights in your spiritual mm-hmm. life it's going to hurt and you're going to feel tired yeah but the next day you're going to feel a little bit stronger that's right so holiness of god next one is a, my favorite fiction book of all time by charles dickens david copperfield Really? Uh, yeah. I had a professor at seminary one time that said the best Dickens book ever. He said my favorite book ever, not just Dickens, but anybody else. He said is David Copperfield. Huh. So over Christmas break, I thought, I'm going to read it. And then I discovered it was about 900 pages. <laughs> but David Copperfield, this is what people think about Dickens, that David Copperfield is an autobiography of Dickens. Hmm. But in this book, this this character, David Copperfield, is kind of this kid that just, he goes from being this basically homeless peasant kid to a a prolific author. Years later, he'll write Great Expectations. And what people think is that David Copperfield is this kind of innocent kid that he's just, you just love him. There's nothing really wrong with him in a sense. Years later, Great Expectations, you've got Pip. Pip has a similar story, but Pip's a little more corrupt. Mm. And some people think that Dickens gets a hold more of his own heart later on, and Pip is kind of an auto... I don't know if it's autobiography or something, but yeah, here's the marvelous thing about David Copperfield. Cole, you got to read this, because we could talk I've never about even it. come close to this book. I don't, okay. think, I don't think I've ever even seen it in real life. David Copperfield is a book where the main character is not the coolest part of the book. It's, it's all the people around him. It's, huh. it's uh, Peggotty... His 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 nanny. It's Barkus. It's Ham. It's Emily. It's his aunt Betsy Trotwood, who in the BBC series is played by Maggie Smith. I think in okay. from Harry Potter and and, yeah. and Downton Abbey. McGonagall. And she has this eccentric friend, Mister Dick. And then there's Agnes. And then there's my favorite character is Mister Micawber. Mister Micawber is this guy that takes David Copperfield in when he's a kid. But Micawber is the guy that where hope is always a strategy. It's mm. he, he's always going into debt. He has to go to debtor's prison. He's selling everything. <laughs> Uh, but he always says this, I know something is about to turn up. I just know it. And his <laughs> wife, Mrs. Micawber, who's in the Harry Potter movie, the actress, actors and actresses you will see in Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. In the B- Rent the BBC DVD. I've got it in my house. I'll rent it to you for 10 bucks. But um, <laughs> his wife is always saying, I will never desert Mr. Micawber. Oh, no, I never will. And no one's asking her if she ever will. But she doth protest too much. You know, she, uh-huh. she keeps and, and she keeps getting pregnant and having kids. And he they have to get all their furniture cleared out. But. But it's neat because in the end, something good happens and mm-hmm. it, something does turn up. But there's also villains. You've got a guy named Steerforth, Uriah Heep, if you've ever heard that name. Oh, yeah. Uh, Edward Murdstone. Murdstone is the wicked stepdad of David Copperfield. In the BBC series, the Harry Potter actor plays young David Copperfield. So the actors really? in it are just, yeah, it's great. So wow. David well, Copperfield. Yeah, I have to rent that. You're the only um, person I know that still rents. That, that uh, videos. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's at my house for you to rent. I own I'll, this I'll one. rent yeah. it. I'll I own rent this one. Yeah. But, but I was going to Only you... if I can come over to your house like we used to at Blockbuster and stand around for an hour and then decide we don't really want to watch yeah. anything anyway. <laughs> you can just stand, stand in front of my TV cabinet yeah, you know, just, and you'll just see Just perusing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, David Copperfield, I would just say if it, it, it's work to read it because it's Charles Dickens, but it's just, it starts with the day he's born. Uh-huh. Is that Aunt Betsy Trotwood is there played by Maggie Smith and she wants her niece to have a girl and she has a boy so she just abandons him but later in life something happens mm-hmm. and she becomes this great benefactor for him it's just a cool story yeah then finally i know this one hasn't been mentioned on the podcast but i've got to say i've got to take something funny 
Mm-hmm. I've got to laugh while I'm on this deserted island. Letters from a Nut is a series <laughs> by an author named Ted Nancy, and you've read it. Oh, it's and great. It, it's, it's hard so to, good. But I would say if you get it, get the first two. I think there's about four or five now, but the first two are the best. But this is a guy that actually is a friend of Jerry Seinfeld's that would write businesses and hotels and like, and he'll say, hey, I'm going to stay in your hotel this week. But in one point, he's like this little circus dwarf. And he's like, how powerful are your shower heads? Because I might, <laughs> it might roll me all around the tub and I need a little bitty dresser. And, and then he publishes the letters they write back to him. Uh-huh. But I, I get, my stomach hurts the next day after reading letters. Yeah. And it's brilliant writing because the man, this guy whose name, his real name is not Ted Nancy, but he writes brilliantly. He uses punctuation just like you should, he uses all caps. There's one where he's writing, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Steve! It's all caps, Steve. And you're, and then Frank! And, and then by the time you get to the end of the letter, he says, oh, I've got this ailment where I just randomly yell people's names out loud. Uh-huh. Can you accommodate me? But in the letter, he does it. And it's just <laughs> hilarious. So so Letters from a Nut oh, yeah, by they, Ted Nancy. That would be a good one. And it oh. came out recently. That, I mean, it, I thought that it was Less than, Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, and it's and, not. And turns out it's really not. I mean, it, you could see how it could be. Yeah, because he writes the forewords, and you right. think, and you it's, think it's a pseudonym, but, but apparently it's, actually, it's not. It's a guy he met at a party one time, and at this party, people were passing around the letters that this guy <laughs> wrote, and Seinfeld's like, you got to get this in a book. Oh, there are some great ones. So, there are some great ones. Uh, he wrote Diet Coke and says, I'm thinking of... Naming a beverage like yours called Kyat Depsy or, or something <laughs> yeah, like that. I Are you okay with yeah. this? And there's yeah, a guy. It who, tastes exactly the same. In fact, a lot of my friends have told me this tastes exactly like Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a guy that owns a, a Norm's Barbershop and he says, I want to set up a barbershop right next year's and I'm going to call it Ganorm's Barbershop. Are you okay with that? <laughs> and then. And some of the letters they have to blank out the words because the people are just getting irate because then yeah. he'll write back again. And I like the one where he, he wants to check into the hotel, but he writes him and tells him that he's a klepto. And he's like, I steal things. He's like, it could be a lamp. It could be your mattress. He's like, yeah. and I promise I'll, I'll, I'll give I'll it back. Them. I'll yeah. return them. At some but I will steal your alarm clock. <laughs> I will steal your lamp. I will steal your mattress, but I will return them. Yeah. yeah. Can you accommodate me? Yeah. <laughs> and what's funny is some of the letters are just form letters. It's like they didn't even read his letter. Yeah. yeah. Um, but just, some, I think it's Diet Coke sends him a cease and desist letter when he wants the Kyat Depsium. And they send their, the attorneys send the letter to yes. him. Yes. So. Oh, that's a great uh, book. It's a great, great book. You'd have so. a good you'd have a good time with on your desert island with those books. And it's much easier to read than any of the other books I just listed. Very true. Yeah, it's on Very about true. a second grade reading level, which is about on par with me. <laughs> so But hey, before we go, I've gotta say that I love the jingle. Because when I hear the jingle for So We Speak, all I can say is, everybody's talking at me. And I think it should be called So We Talk. (laughs) They don't hear a word I'm saying. You know, listen to the jingle when we tune out, y'all, because you're going to hear, everybody's talking at me. You just start, you'll know. Every time I hear this podcast, I start singing that doggone song in my head. So carry on as you were. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. (laughs) 